podcast starts. Hello, everyone. If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. And thanks for sticking with us. This show talks about horror. Horror in film, TV, other media, other items which we think of as adjacent to horror, and sometimes other things from our lives which we'd like to talk about, just because that's who we are. This week we're discussing another missed classic from the year 1981, Lucio Fulci's The Black Cat. Now we have a number of hosts who vary week to week. In recent weeks you've heard a lot of Kirsty and Stella. They're not here this week, sadly. Um, They've both had to, um, you know... Put their careers first for once, bless them, because it's that time of year and they work in education. But I'm here, I'm T.D. Velasquez, although you can call me Dan. And this week I have the honour of being joined by a very special guest, Spider Dan, from the Spider Dan and the Secret Boars podcast. Say hello, sir. Hello, sir. Thank you very much, sir. It's wonderful to have you back. The listeners, um, well, our long-time listeners will know you well because of all the Halloween reviews that you've appeared on. The last one that we put out was Halloween 5. How have you been? I've, I've been great. I've been fantastic. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, I've been really enjoying uh, listening back to those because um, we did do them some time ago. So it was nice to kind of reminisce and and uh, it was nice to kind of relive those uh, those reviews and those moments within the Halloween franchise, good or ill. Um, I think we had a we had a blast recording those. So it was. It was I think nice. sometimes for ill was even more fun. <laughs> yeah, if anything, if anything, the worse it was, the better it was. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, but um, no, it's been it's been great listening and catching up, and uh, I really enjoyed your Suspiria episode as well. That was really good. I love I love Suspiria, and I'm I'm sure we'll mention that quite a lot within this one. Well, yes. Well, Italian horror seems to be kind of a recurring theme um, with us, doesn't it? Really, um, you know. And, and I've also been on your show talking about. Orca, which is yes. an Italian horror film. Oh my god! So um, I do, I do have. Right. I, I was going to mention Orca, but we'll we'll wait till a little bit later. I've got a okay <laughs> something within this well, film yeah. kind of reminded me of Orca a little bit. <laughs> oh, I'm really intrigued. Um, okay, so before we get into discussing the Black Cat, uh, let's just talk about um, you know a little bit about any news that we might want to mention this week. The, the news that's foremost on my mind is not strictly horror-related, but it's something that I know that I'd like to talk about, and you would. And also, if Kirsty and Stella were here, they'd also like to talk about, as we're all fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And of course, this week, very tragically and suddenly, we lost Chadwick Boseman, Black Panther himself, at the age of 43. That was a real shock. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, 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 I just... Had, I had no idea he was ill. I think he very much kept this illness to himself um, and his his struggle. Um, even even during it, he's done some of his best work while suffering with um, with this with cancer. You know, he's still gone out and done charity events. He's done promotional events. Well, I mean, he's made movies. I mean, I think uh, I read that his diagnosis was in twenty sixteen. And he's made four Marvel movies. Cards on the table. I haven't seen any of his other work yet. I certainly intend to check out films like The Five Bloods Hmm. um, and 21 Bridges. But, um, yeah, if he was diagnosed in 2016, that means the four Marvel films that he was in, maybe the first one, Captain America Civil War, was made before his diagnosis. But the others were all shot since. And that's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. uh, just an, no. an incredible talent, incredible man, very charitable. You know, just just you just have to look at what kind of 
he, uh, the character of Black Panther has been around as long as you know. I'm, I'm a big Marvel nerd, as you know. The character of the Black Panther has been around since the sixties. You know, it was the it was one of the first characters, black characters, that was not portrayed as kind of a stereotype. So it was a very big deal even back then at the time. And he's gone on to kind of to kind of you know just um, this Chadwick Boseman embodies the Black Panther and the message that Black Panther uh, stands for. And and I yes. I've just he's he's taken that character and brought it to a wider audience. Um, I mean, look at look at the film Black Panther. Look at the the effects. You know, how many big blockbuster films do you have with like a ninety percent you know black cast? You know, that's very rare yeah. in cinema. And I think it's amazing that that he was able to do that. And Marvel was able to do that. And and it and you could see you can see the effect that it had because of just in general just the the amount of the turnout the box office alone was huge yeah. um, but obviously the film was incredible as well and and just had full of messages and ideas and and everything and, and he's a very big part of why that film was such a success well i mean i, I i'm i'm quite like the film i'm not a, the hugest fan i don't think it's the best film in the mcu but it's possibly the most important um and certainly it does have um the most thought-provoking content. I think the, the real heartbreaking thing... Well, there's so many heartbreaking things about the fact that we've lost such a talented person at such a young age. But, you know, in a year like this, it's such... Which has already been a, um, a shocking year um, for the black community to kind of lose such a hopeful symbol. And obviously his work will live on and the character of Black Panther will live on whatever they choose to do in the future films. I'm sure that, you know, that legacy is assured. Yeah. Um, but it just feels very, uh, such a cruel loss at the moment, you know, and yeah. um, uh, I'm just kind of staggered by that a, a little bit, really. Yeah. Um, I was, I was, I was gutted. I was genuinely gutted because he's such like there's a reason in infinity war that he's the first hero that comes back and he's the first hero you see i think there's a there's a huge reason for that and that's because of the presence of the character and the talent mm. of chadwick boseman himself yeah yeah and um it was it was kind of heartwarming to see all the tributes that people made um uh, sterling k brown for instance um I, and I mean, you know, it, the importance of that movie can't be overstated. I mean, we talk a lot, or we have kind of mentioned, we don't talk a lot. On this podcast, all the hosts uh, are white, we're obviously British, we don't necessarily know that much no. about um, American race relations to comment on these things, but we have mentioned how kind of we have this growing awareness of how white the horror genre is, and... Um, but we love the kind of emerging black horror um, canon. Hmm. Uh, of, I, I keep mentioning Get Out. I said last week we were talking about it, and I, I kind of said, I hate to be that guy, but actually Get Out is my favourite horror film of the last few years. Hmm. And what I meant there was I hate to be the white guy trying to be kind of cool and hip, <laughs> going, yes, I, I love this film that the black people made. Um <laughs> You know, um, I, but I, I, I'm, a, I'm, but it's... I'm partial to. Uh, have you ever seen Tales from the Hood? Have you ever seen that one? No, I've heard about it, and I, it's, it's 
the have you seen the documentary Horror Noir? No, but I want to. I very much want to. That's on Shudder. I watched it the other week, and they talk about Tales from the Hood a lot in that, and it made me want to watch it. It's definitely. great. It's really good. Very, um, very kind of Tales from the Crypt, but with a right. kind of with you know with a with a kind of black spin um, and tales from that kind of the history of that, and there's a lot of kind of slavery stuff and the devil and undead people. Uh, there's actually like there's a story about um, about white cops being racist as well. Um, right. They obviously get their comeuppance, but I won't spoil it. But it's a, it's a great, okay. great, great movie. So yeah, uh, check that I'd out. love to see it, and I understand there is a Tales from the Hood two as well. Uh, they, um, I, and in fact, they've just announced the third one. They've just released a trailer for the third one. All right. Okay. And um, but I mean, I, I, you know, this progression is obviously um, something that's in progress. I mean, um. Uh, last year we had uh, Jordan Peele's film Us, mm. which I, I enjoyed a lot and was kind of uh, a thought-provoking film that I want to see again. And I, but I do remember thinking it's striking that um, you know basically the two main actors in that film, Lupita Nyong'o and um, oh no, I'm blanking on his name. But um, anyway, they're sure they both. <laughs> well, the the chap who played the. Um, the kind of leader of the opposing tribe. Oh in Black yeah, Panther. Um, Umbaku. He plays Umbaku, doesn't he? Yeah, um, he is the male lead in us. Oh, I see. And I just thought, you know, so so there's obviously such a small pool of um, actors of color that Hollywood kind of considers bankable enough to to launch a movie upon. Um, but hopefully that is kind of changing. I am, I am really also looking to the, forward to the reboot of Candyman. Uh, the trailer for that looks amazing. I am now. Um, I, I, Candyman is one of my favourite films, um, and I, I, I'm not necessarily sure it's got more more in it. I mean, I don't think the sequels that were made were were very good. However, having kind of they again they talk about Candyman a lot on that documentary, and thinking about it from a black point of view, hmm. um, I, I'd like, I like the idea of re-exploring the material from. From more of a black angle, because obviously, although Candyman is one of the most significant black horror films, because it has um, obviously a black uh, antagonist in it, but it was written and directed by a white British guy. It's based on a story by a British guy, um, and it's not really from that the African American perspective. Whereas the new film is. I don't quite know what their take on it is, but the the le- based on the trailer, the kind of heroic character the protagonist who apart from Candyman, is a black person hmm. so therefore i i who is connect I, I think it's supposed to be the grown-up boy from the original Candyman. oh really film, i think okay um yeah because it's it's another reboot sequel that has the same title as the original but it's it's got definite continuity i mean um uh, the actress vanessa williams reprises her role as Anne marie from the original Candyman. Ah. Um, so I think it has direct continuity, but now it's kind of um, soft. I think, soft reboot. Yeah, um, but I, and obviously it's got Jordan Peele behind it in some level. He doesn't direct it, um, and I, and I th- and again because of seeing his input in that documentary, I'd like to see what he does with that film. So, um, well, that was a, a bit of a, a wide-ranging discussion. Yeah, I know, right. Uh, of a, of a topic that you can't cover in a few minutes, but it, you know, it's it just we had to touch on. I think we just had to touch on the, the tragic loss 
of Chadwick Boseman. Um, Absolutely. Obviously, our, our thoughts are with his loved ones and, and with his fans all around the world. I just re-watched Captain America Civil War last week, actually, um, and was so impressed by him. Um, and uh, I'm, I look forward to re-watching his other Marvel movies, but it will obviously be tinged with sadness. But um, the main thing is, what a legacy. Absolutely. 100%. Um, in such a short time. Um, stunning man. And how ironic that we are, in this week, we are talking about a film called The Black Cat. Ah, um, yes. I hadn't really, uh, I really yeah. thought about that. <laughs> oh, by the way, Dan, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that you sound a lot um, better. You had a bit of a cold, I, did. I think, on your last podcast. I did, I did. I think that was my top five Sentinels comics, because, as you know, yes. my, my podcast is very much, Spider-Man The Secret Ball is very much uh, cult films and comic books, for the most part. We do some other stuff, but um, but yeah, so uh, so I covered that, and yeah, I was like, I was like, right, I'm going to get back on the, I've had a little break, I'm going to get back on the podcasting horse, and then the day I did it... <laughs> Just all, <laughs> all of that, and it was just. I was like, I'm so sorry. This was going to be good, but I was like, I'm like, I'm determined. I'm not going to re-record. I'm just going to plow through. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was good a good. Man. It was a good one. I've got got another one coming up this Friday. Uh, very divisive set of films. We're doing. Uh, uh, my friend is defending the Twilight Saga. Oh, this twi- I thought you were going to say Twilight Zone. No. Okay. The, all, all four films in the Twilight Saga. Dan. There are five. Trust me, there are five. Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry. Of course, there are four books, but one of them is two films. That's right. Yeah, I've is, never seen any of them, nor five, read them. So. I watched all five films. Don't you worry, I know about it. Um, I, you said it's a case of I'll listen to your podcast so I don't have to watch the films. Um, maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, hey, you know what? Kirsty loves the Twilight um, saga. I wouldn't dare knock it. No, I've never seen no. it or read it. And, um, I, and, I, and I didn't hate them. But I also didn't overly like them too much. So, somewhere in the middle. I will say this. A a while ago I heard an interview with the director of the first film, Catherine Hardwick. And she's just fascinating and mad. And she's a a designer who became a director. And just to hear the way she talks about her films um, just made me want to watch it. It does seem to be a little bit corporate that they kind of booted her off the films after the first one. Mm. I, th- I think they wanted um, to get the next one out like within the year, so they were like, "We want a really quick turnaround." And I think she might yeah. she might have said, "I don't think I can do that." You know, spent two years on this one. I don't think I can do it in a year. So it's very much like the Marvel films are after somebody who can just get the job done uh, sure. as, as best they can and as quickly as they can to to kind of churn them out but also with some creative choices obviously um but yeah it's it's going to be an interesting one but that's out on this friday so um i'm not okay. sure not sure when yours is going to be released but but uh, we're we're coming out the same day oh are we? so there's Excellent. going to be a double helping of spider down oh oh well, well they are in for a treat <laughs> yeah absolutely um although i have to say um I do hold a slight grudge against you because I feel like by listening to your podcast, I caught your cold. Because I oh, have a slight cold no. this week. And as I have been shielding for months um, with my with my mother, mm. who's vulnerable, I can't think of any way I can possibly have caught a cold except from your podcast. So we didn't know that, you know, um, cold germs could be transmitted over podcasts, but now we do. I am patient zero. So, so it's a it's a human virus turned into a computer virus turned into a human virus. <laughs> yes, yeah, I think that's the way we're going. All right, sir. Well, 
Shall we now tackle the black cat? Yes, please. I think what, what we what we'll do is we'll listen to the trailer for the film, um, for the benefit of the listeners, and then we'll get into talking about it. We need each other. We are bound together by hatred. He wants to kill me. But he's only a cat. Mm. A cat. And sooner or later will kill me. The daughter's death was an accident which we haven't managed to explain. An epidemic of accidents, and all of them pretty weird. Death is not the end of everything. Just the beginning of a new journey. I want to speak with them. But there are limits, barriers. We set up those barriers in self-defense. Perhaps we hold possibilities within ourselves we are not aware of, powers we ourselves don't understand. Maybe we don't want to, because we're terrified. I have such powers, and I'm not terrified. You haven't gotten me out of bed just to look at me. Well, I think it's a good idea. Well, I hope you've got a better one. Better, but uh, not so good. Now, I need some more information on your theories about cats. Not cats. One cat. All right, one cat. A killer cat. For you, it's a theory. For me, it's a certainty. He would have to have thought it out. In the case of the two kids, it was the cat also. They'll think we're crazy if we say it's a cat. It wasn't the first time I've kept an eye on him. My last night, there he was at the cemetery. You actually heard him talking to the dead? God knows what you're capable of seeing when you've had a few. But I tell you, I did. So what you heard there, everybody, was the trailer to Lucio Fulci's 1981 film The Black Cat. Now, I'll give a bit of a, a background to the movie. Um, this is ostensibly an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's 1843 short story of the same name, which has been filmed multiple times. And Dan, um, I don't know it's really relevant, but for this podcast, as well as watching the Fulci film, I did read the original story and... Also, I watched the 1941 Universal ah. version with Bella Lugosi. Um, that's like completely irrelevant, but I just wanted to see how people have um, interpreted have the story. Tackled it because basically the story is is very unfilmable. It's not a movie. I, I, have you read it? I've I've not read it, but I, I was aware that this has been adapted. You know, it's Edgar Allan Poe's has been adapted quite a few yeah. times. Um, 
I actually did a, a while back. I did a top five good and bad movie cats with a friend. Yes, of mine. I heard that, and yeah. I was going to ask you about it because this cat in this film came at number one on your list of it, it evil cer- cats. It certainly did. It certainly, certainly did. Um, but yes, so uh, I consider this a very bad cat. Um, we'll get. I'm yeah. sure we'll get into that. But um, if you want to, if you want a list well, of uh, top five good and bad cats, that's what. That's where you want to go. It's a fun episode. It certainly is. Um, and there was one evil cat there that I um, I thought, I, I don't know that. I must check that out. Mm. And um, off the top of my head, it's gone up yeah. right now. But, um, there was, but a, there was a few that I did. Uh, I think Haozu was in there, the Japanese film. Uh, oh, that was it. Was that yeah, it? Yeah, I really need to see that. That sounds so That's a mad film. Yeah. Mad film, absolutely. Yeah. But but so creative mm. and strange all at the same time. Um, but yeah. Mm. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So, well, I'll... Just, I just want to sum up about how kind of unfilmable the story is because I think it's relevant to the tack that they took on it. Basically, the story is about alcoholism. It's about a guy who's a, a normal bloke, but he just he, he he becomes an alcoholic and a miserable git, and for no reason at all, he kills his own cat or mutilates it and then kills it. Um, and then later on, he kills his wife and he gets another cat. Um, and he tries to hide the body of the wife by bricking it up in, in his house. But the cat, he somehow bricked up the cat with it without realising. So the meowing of the cat from within the wall kind of leads people to find the dead wife. Um, that is literally the whole story. It's it's very short. Um, so with this uh, with this movie, they kind of took some themes and some images from it, like hanging and people being bricked up in walls and things but obviously um constructed their own story around it um dan i know you've already done this on your other podcast because hmm. uh, you you had to sum up the story but you did it so well i thought i'd ask you can you sum up the story of the black cat okay Let's see if i can remember, Without spoiling remember the ending. that's one of the ending um, okay but because what i think we'll do is we'll talk about it for 10 minutes or so just kind of why it's a special film to you and why you recommend it to people yeah, before we go into full spoilers. So the yeah. listeners can have the option of turning off at that point and going watching the film. Because it's quite easy to find. It, yeah. it can be rented on YouTube and places It's like on. That. It's currently... I think it's currently available on Amazon Prime or it's on Shudder, I think. Or maybe it's Arrow. It might be the Arrow video channel. It's on one of those. Well, certainly some Fulci films do turn up quite regularly on, I think, Arrow. So... Mm. That that wouldn't surprise me, but I've definitely seen it on YouTube. You can rent it on YouTube, so so it is available. So Dan, give us the story, please. Okay, so uh, as best as I can describe, uh, the the film is a, about a a string of murders uh, that are that are being perpetrated on several different individuals living in a town, and the one kind of key element that ties them together is a paranormalist called Professor Miles. Um, so he knows these people, he's familiar with them. He might have he might have what people would call a beef with them, have problems with them, former girlfriends or people that made fun of him. And he's known in the local town as being a bit of a kook or a weirdo, um, strange, you know, dangerous, dark. Um, and, you know, he, and he tends to leave these, these microphone uh, recording devices around graveyards. Um, be- right. Because he's trying to commune with the dead, uh, which he can do via the recordings, I believe. Um, and a young uh, photographer 
uh, discovers one and then starts to kind of learn about the history of the town and, and what's going on and becomes involved with Professor Miles. Um, and again, kind of sort of becomes involved in the investigation of these murders as well. Um, she's got her own, you know, ideas and what have you. Then she meets the, the bringing a lead detective from Scotland Yard and, and he also investigates in tandem with her and they kind of team up. Um, and it leads to some very, very like stark, disturbing imagery. The, the, the whole film is filled with this atmosphere, this kind of looming dread and menace. Um, and I think it's very well edited as well. I think it's really well edited. The music's great. Um, the, the, mm. the gruesome kills and murders are, are everything you kind of want and expect from a Lucio Fulci film, as he was, he was known as the godfather of gore. Yes, well, I'll um, take that point because basically I've only recently started getting into Fulci. I think I kind of dismissed this film and some of his other films over the years because I think I became, as soon as I became aware of him, which is when I was a teenager, I read about, I remember reading about this film in SFX magazine, for instance, and I got the idea that his films were just gore and nothing else. So therefore, it didn't seem very interesting to me. However, over the last two years, I've watched uh, Don't Torture a Duckling. Have you seen that one? No, I've not seen that one. That's extraordinary. Um, very strange. Uh, but, I mean, it's an interesting kind of giallo thriller. Um, so, f obviously, Fulci is an Italian director, and like Argento, um, you know, made films in the Italian style where you just shoot them and usually with an international cast, and then redub everyone depending on what market um, you're releasing the film into. Um, and Don't Touch for a Duckling is, uh, yeah, it's a, it's just a very strange thriller, but it has some incredibly gruesome moments. Witness a man falling in slow motion down a mountain, and you get to see in close-up his bits of his head get knocked off um, as he kind of hits various rocks on the way down. Sounds like, um, sounds like Homer Simpson. <laughs> yes, this is even more painful than it looks. Um, and uh, then I watched Zombie Flesh Eaters last year, or Zombie Two, as it's known. Yes, yeah, that's. I think that's the only other one I've seen. I might, I might have seen another Fulci one, but it's not, it's not coming to mind. But I'll be honest, if you ever want to see a zombie fight a shark, that's your movie. It's recommendable based on that alone. Yeah, and absolutely. It, yeah, it's and it has a great. Um, score on it by Fabio Fritzi as well. Um, but I think my main kind of takeaway from watching those two films and then this one is that Fulci, um, yeah, they, they tend to be very gruesome and violent and explicit. Um, and also they have that kind of cheese factor of the, the kind of slightly wayward dubbing that is endemic to all of these movies. However, Fulci is a really interesting and strong visual storyteller who gets a lot out of just kind of moving the, the camera um, and and kind of changing angle. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, you know, it's, it's a real widescreen film, this, and it's very impressively framed, and so much is told without dialogue. In fact, I think the opening kind of 10 minutes or so is dialogue-free, and I thought, what was the last film I saw that did that? And um, I realised it was... Orca, which we discussed on your show, um, yes. 
I love I Which, love Orca. I loved Orca. Really enjoyed talking about that one. <laughs> that's brilliant. I'm so glad. And I I think it's interesting that that was in they're both Italian films. That one was directed by a British guy, but they both have this kind of um you know, dialogue uh averse style to them. They they're very visually told stories. I, th- I think um, I think that for me because I'm very much like a visual person, visual learner. I love comic books. I love still images. I love you know frames of movies. And I I think for me that's that's definitely like you said one of the stronger elements. And and again like we said there's not there's not a very strong plot. There's not much to the plot. Um, but it 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 kind of doesn't matter because the the richness like you said of the visual storytelling makes this film unique and um, what it is um i think there's a few other things in it which are really strong as well i mean you mentioned the music which is by pino Danagio, and i think it's interesting that he scored a british horror film made in italy which was don't look now and now he's scored scoring with this film an italian horror film made in britain <laughs> um so he's he's kind of got it covered and he composes this kind of well, the one thing I don't like about the score is the kind of mawkish, uh, romantic kind of main theme which accompanies the cat. Um, yeah, yeah, that's the idea. And I think the main reason I, I don't like it is because I can't get it out of my head since I watched the movie. Um, the, the rest of the score is really great. I mean, we've discussed him on this show before. He's Obviously, he's got some Hollywood pedigree. He scored Carrie. Um, in the same year as this, he scored The Howling. So Ooh. not only an evil cat movie, but a, a, a werewolf movie in the same year. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think his scores are kind of very powerful. And in this movie, as the the narrative progresses, the score becomes more kind of foreboding and really kind of pulls you into it. Yeah, I, 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 do, I do agree with that that cat theme. It kind of opens the film. It's kind of, it's almost a bit... Yeah. It's almost a bit ridiculous, and then and then you get lots of shots of the cat kind of prowling rooftops and things, and I just thought yeah, kind I, of picturesque. <laughs> it's got a beautiful, beautiful shots, and it just made me think it was like an Italian Coronation Street, just with all. <laughs> yeah, and um, it it really stands out that theme because they they only really use it on the opening titles and the end credits, and it doesn't really set up a horror film or a suspense film at all. In fact. I recently watched another early 80s film for the first time, Tootsie, which is obviously a completely different kind of movie. But the music sort of slightly reminded me of that. (laughs) You know, just the kind of upbeatness of it. And and the cats just going around the the village and sitting on roofs and things. Um, Very odd. But, but, But it's a beautiful looking film. The photography is just stunning, especially the kind of incredibly atmospheric dry ice filled bits where miles goes into the um you know the graveyard and he's trying to commune with the deads that with the deads with the dead in the graveyard um i also want to mention patrick mcgee as well who plays robert miles because um i i know his work he was one of the earliest interpreters of both Samuel Beckett and Harold Pinter in the theatre. You know, he was the... Do you know the Samuel Beckett play Crap's Last Tape? Um, I'm not familiar with that one, sorry. It's basically an audio play for the stage. and So it's been done on the radio quite a lot, but it's basically a man sits down with a tape recorder and records his thoughts. 
Um, I have to confess, I haven't heard a full version of it, so I can't I can't really tell you what the point of it is. But it's quite uh, well, you know, uh, it's quite Becketian, and it was written for Patrick McGee. Samuel Beckett saw him. He's a he's a Northern Irish actor. It was the late fifties. They were working in similar circles, and Samuel Beckett got to know McGee, who was also one of the first per- people to play Pozzo in Beckett's Waiting for Godot, which is a play I do know very well. Um, and it's a really menacing part, which I can really imagine him playing. Um, so, so yeah, Samuel Beckett went, this guy's voice is amazing. I'm going to write a play just for this voice. Um, and... Because of the strong visual storytelling of the Black Cat, my worry going into it was that, is he not going to say much? You know, I think it's maybe 25 minutes in before you get a scene where McGee really gets to speak. But it, but then, but the scene is when um, the photographer character played by Mimsy Farmer um, takes the microphone that she's found, she returns it to him, and... Um, she gives it to him and he says, so, what do you want to know? And uh, she goes, oh, nothing. And he goes, nothing? And um, I just thought, no, that's McGee. We're going to get full McGee here. And then for the whole rest of the movie, he's got loads of speeches. I mean, you know, you heard lots of them in that trailer. Mm. Um, and he's just got a voice of horror. He did get. He did do a lot of horror films. In fact, he's in the movie which this podcast takes its name from. And now the screaming starts from 1973. Patrick McGee is in that, along with Peter Cushing and, uh, you know, Stephanie Beecham and a lot of the usual horror faces. Um, but there's a movie called Demons of the Mind, which is McGee's only Hammer film. And literally the first thing that you hear in it is Patrick McGee saying the title of the film, Demons of the Mind. <laughs> and... Uh, you're just strapped in from that point. He's just got such a wonderful voice. And um, I think he's brilliant in this film. They obviously, I'm really glad they chose to get him to dub his own voice, which is often not the case in these kind of productions, but it's clearly him. Um, and yeah, and, and, he's, and he's got low. And the thing is, he, he's got one of those voices that can sell any line. So you know how on our discussion of Orca we were talking about, you can kind of tell when the dialogue is written in English by people who's, for whom English is not their first language. I mean, maybe some of McGee's lines are like that, they're just a bit weird, but he has a way of selling everything he says. Um, and I, I, in a way, I would recommend this movie for his performance alone. It's got a lot of other things going for it. And actually, I didn't know this until I researched it for this. Well, researched it. I went on Wikipedia, folks. <laughs> um, but this was nearly Patrick McGee's last film. Mm-hmm. I kind of hoped that either he had a flourishing career in Italian movies after this, and I didn't know about it, or maybe he just had a happy retirement somewhere. But no, he died the following year, and he was only 60. It's It's weird to think of him as dying young because yeah. he obviously has this ancient countenance. But yeah, he was only 60, he had a heart attack. Um, he made one more film after this, which was a French, bizarre-sounding version of Jekyll and Hyde, um, which is, I, I, was never even properly released in this country until Arrow 
did a, a Blu-ray of it a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, and I'd quite like to see that film. It's with Udo Kier and it sounds absolutely bizarre. But it's one of those kind of French art house horror films that won, won all kinds of festival awards but was banned in this country or certainly suppressed. Mm. So... You were saying um, you were saying um, Peter Cushing. You were talking about Peter Cushing. Then hmm. I was reading that Peter Cushing was originally approached for this role. All right. However, much like yourself, Dan, he felt that Lucio Fulci was just all about the gore. Um, right. And that is why he, he turned it down. And then they approached Patrick McGee. Right. Okay. So, well, uh, you know, I think they went to the the, the right guy. Um, I think. Gushing would have been great as well, and it would have been a nice role for him. But on the other hand, we would have missed out on a great final performance for Patrick McGee because he is, although, like I say, he had this great legacy um, in theatre and, and and repute. He's also, do you remember when the BBC did kind of um, adaptations of Shakespeare in the 70s? You might have watched some of them at school. I, ab- I, I absolutely did, did yes. <laughs> yeah, well, he was King Lear. In, in that series. Um, so, but I think this is a great final performance for him, though, because in many, many films, he's kind of a supporting role and, and he's very much the, the front and centre in this film and he gets so many wonderful speeches and, and I think that's fantastic. I think the other thing we should... Sorry, Dan, you were going to say something then. Um, I was going to say that as, as lovely as Patrick McGee's voice is, no doubt, I, I, the version I watched was all in Italian. Oh right! So okay. I, I didn't, I didn't get to hear it. So I would like to kind oh. of, kind of go back and kind of watch it again, but with the with the dub, like which is which is not usually what I would say in regards to kind of like foreign films. Um, mm. I'm very much like I'll be honest. I'm very much like if I put a film on and it's dubbed, it starts in dub or it starts with subtitles. I'll just carry on regardless. I won't. I don't have a preference. Um, right. Okay. But. But with this one, I can't now. the The way you talk about him, the way you talk about his voice, I'm like, ah, oh, I kind of wish I'd heard that now. Yeah, I definitely. I, well, I mean, it's one of your favourite films. Um, you know, I'm sure you'll go back and watch it again sometime. No doubt. So next time, see the English language version because you know it. Um, I could tell that he was speaking English in the visual recording as well. So and 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 the English dub almost matches the lips at every point and the the funny thing is i mean howard speaks about this a lot um you know sometimes as an actor when you have to dub something especially if you have to dub a different actor you might have to do strange contortions with the words to make them fit the lips and i think he's possibly doing that but patrick mcgee can do that and make it work um because he just elongates words <laughs> and yet makes them sound like he believes them. And I, I think it's just a fantastic pleasure. Um, before we go on to spoilers then, mm, yes. um, I just think we should talk a little bit about how the cat factors in because you didn't really include the cat in, in your plot summary. I was bit... And as I summed up from the story, it's kind of because... When you're adapting or taking inspiration from that Edgar Allan Poe story, you kind of have to just make up your own story. It's not really an adaptation, and you decide where the cat comes into it. I mean, for instance, I've just watched the 1941 one. The cat is almost completely irrelevant, even though that's the title of the movie. They do do a bit at the end where the cat meows, and that leads someone to find something that they wouldn't have. But apart from that, there's nothing. Yeah. Um, 
So, in, but in this film, the cat is kind of more central, and in fact, the cat is the first thing you see in the movie. Mm. So, um, so actually, describe the first scene, please, Dan. I, I'm sure, I will yeah, be I'm sure that can't count as a spoiler. I'd be uh, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I don't. I don't. That's this is why I kind of was a bit a bit tentative about mentioning the cat before spoilers. But yes, yeah, <laughs> so the open scene. Uh, we have a we have a kind of you see the cat. There's there's kind of a few shots of the cat prowling. Um, and then there's a there's a gentleman, just you know it kind of the film kind of just begins. It doesn't really have like a, you know, it just yeah, kind of it, just starts. It just um, gets in there. Yeah, I I which respect is, that. Which is great. And I was I was just a bit like I, I was like I was I was worried if I would I'd start it later on and I'd miss like some sort of intro bit. But it just kind of begins. Um, a guy gets into his car. The cat also gets into the car, drives along. Eventually, he's driving down the road and he notices there's something in the back seat. It's a cat. Looks at the cat, looks at the cat, looks at the cat, uh, cat looks back, and then all of a sudden he kind of kind of just starts driving with this kind of mesmerised look in his eye, keeps driving, keeps driving, and then causes himself to have a very violent car crash where it's slow motion, comes flying through the windscreen, <laughs> everywhere, dead. And then... It goes into that lovely weird music that we we that didn't really, <laughs> yes. that doesn't really fit the scene that we've just seen. This bloody wreck of a car. It's just like doo-doo-doo. no, and then he's very it, bizarre. And again, we've got Italian, you know, Coronation Street. The cat's on the roof walking around, um, and then you get all the credits start to roll and stuff. Um, but it's 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 a very off kilter beginning. You're kind of like, okay, what am I what am I in for? And you're like, oh my god, and then to go and from then, that. But- to the music and then just yeah, just yeah. like and it's just like ten minutes of, of a shot of a cat walking around doing its thing. <laughs> you know. And and I, I think we can say in spoiler free section that basically the cat is linked to every incident, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's always there when there's a murder, but exactly how it um, is connected to the murder is is a little bit vague and is explored as the movie goes on. Yeah. But it's always present and you kind of I mean, um, it, it and, has it has an active role to play in some of them, and and less of yeah. an active role to play in others. Yeah, and you're not always sure exactly what its presence implies, what its role is, and and also it seems to have kind of different kinds of powers in different yes. bits of the film. Um, I mean, certainly in that opening scene, it looks like it kind of hypnotizes the guy to yeah. drive his car off the road, mm-hmm. and then you know we we get. Um, what I think of as a Fulci hallmark, which is slow motion head trauma. <laughs> you know, I, I talked about the priest falling down the hill, and you know, there's also the bit in Zombie Flesh Eaters, where the poor woman's eye gets gouged out. Oh yeah. Um, um, and which may not be slow motion, but certainly feels slow. It's like uh, that's that's a long, grueling scene, mm. and um, and then later in the film, there's a bit. No spoilers, but you know you do get sight of someone else's um, eye yeah. in a state of oh dear um, in this <laughs> film, um, and uh, yeah, I I think that's definitely something that he had some kind of flair for. Mm. Um, yeah, not knowing not, not knowing much about Lucio Fulci, but um, and the other things I would just say before we go into spoilers. Mm. Uh, is that I think the other cast members, I know I've gone on about McGee, but the other cast are good. I think um, the lead actress in it is Mimsy Farmer, whose real name 
was Merle, but she called herself Mimsy from a young age in tribute to the line from uh, Lewis Carroll's poem Jabberwocky, All Mimsy Were the Borough Groves. Ah. Um, and something, I don't know if you know this about her. Dan, do you know any, anything about her other career? Um, I, di- I didn't look her up, I'm afraid, no, but so please She's She is a, um, an artist and sculptress, and she sculpts things for movies, and she still does that. One of the films that she worked on recently was Guardians of the Galaxy. No way. Amazing. Yeah, so... So go for it, Mimsy Farmer. But yeah, I think her performance is really good. Um, the lead um, detective in it is David Warbeck, who I've now seen the beginning and end and middle of his career because he started in Hammer films. In the late 60s, he, play, he actually played Robin Hood in a, a TV pilot that wasn't picked up. And then he did a few films like this in the middle. And then I've seen his, his last film is a low-budget British horror film from the you know the 90s period of very few very very low budget British horror films being made called Razorblade Smile um ah. a female vampire action movie um very beloved of Kirsty on this podcast and he plays pathologist in it and I think he died before the film came out um but I think he's quite um, a charismatic presence actually um and and likable and engaging and also has uh, the best entrance possibly of anyone ever in a film, um, which we'll, we'll get into in, in spoilers. But, you know, you'll know it when you see it. Um, so, yeah, I think there's loads in this film that's kind of worth checking out. And I also think it's just it's always interesting to see a film that's made in Britain because this film, the location sequences were shot in Britain, but the interiors were done in Italy. Um and I think that you always... It's interesting to see a British movie that's by non-British people and has the different perspective on kind of British life. And, and there was this strange situation in the 80s where British filmmakers never seemed to have quite enough money to make horror movies at home. They had to go to Europe. But somehow, European filmmakers were able to come over to England and shoot on our on our lands and and do because there's this there's um there's films like Black Candles, um uh, which is a, a Raymond Laras film um the, you know there's a few things like that whereas our kind of British horror movies of the period like The Wolves of Willoughby Chase which is a very British subject I think that was filmed in Romania or somewhere um the British producers had to go to places where the location filming was cheaper and then make it look like England, even though they had no money. So you've got these very strange um, kind of... Uh, this kind of strange double tendency in in horror at the time. But, you know, always interesting. Mm. Um, and for me, I would say it's it's worth watching as... It's not at all boring. It's quite... It's, it's so beautifully done. It's got some great performances... It is shocking and frightening in a couple yeah. of places. There, there is, there is one scene in particular that, if you're an animal lover, it might distress you quite a bit. I think. Uh, oh yeah. Um, True. That's that would be the only my only warning if you're if you're very very keen on on animals and protecting animals that it might it may be upsetting, but it depends depends on your personal preference. But um, 
I mean, I mean, if you love humans as well, and they, they, a lot of them get killed in this. Yeah. So, so yeah. So avoid that and as well if you don't like. To some extent, it is uh, a revenge of of nature kind yes, of movie very much as so. well. You very know, much so. the the animals get their own back. So have you seen? Right. Um, have you seen? Uh, sorry to to interrupt. Yeah. Have you seen um, Tales of the Dark Side? No, but that was another one mentioned in your list of evil cats. Yeah, it came very, came very close. There's a section written by Stephen King in there called The Cat from Hell, and that's very much another kind of revenge-laden cat, right. cat movie. But anyway, let's, let's carry on with the spoilers. Yes, yeah, so, all right, everybody, we're into spoilers now, and you can skip forward if you want. In two minutes before the end, we'll give our recommendations for the week. But now we are spoiling the hell out of the black cat. Um, so, okay, so, um, where, gosh, where, where to start? Where to begin? Where to begin? <laughs> I just, I, I think the thing. I mean, as with like Suspiria and other Italian movies that we've discussed, um, there's a sense in the black cat that the kind of coherence of the plot is not as essential as as we like to think it is in the west i mean for instance i think it's interesting and weird that the cat seems to have like an infinite variety of powers yes so it can it physically attacks people but it can also hypnotize them into doing damage to themselves it can also lock people in a room <laughs> and and hide the key and it can also teleport which was like well out of left field yeah um and then it's uh, all, there's almost there's, there's almost moments where it almost creates like either an illusion of itself or like a duplicate of itself almost yeah i mean and i mean i, I you're talking there about the bit where uh, is he called inspector garforth i think so like yeah yeah um so he's kind of coming home he's just we've just had a kind of slight romantic moment where he was questioning um the the Mimsy Farmer character and then they kissed and then we cut to him walking back to the village mm. and I don't know if we met it well the film doesn't give us reason to think that they they might have consummated their attraction at that point but I do remember thinking he looked like he had a bit of a funny walk <laughs> <laughs> I kind of thought that's a po that could be a post coital walk going on there. um but, uh, and at that point, he's he's kind of ambushed by the cat, and it and it seems, and I find it, I, I kind of read it like this in first instance. It seems like he's actually surrounded by loads of cats, mm. and I wondered if that was where the plot was going. It's like, oh, is this the revelation? It's not just one evil cat. It's it's basically the cat equivalent of Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. It, this this cat has got everyone else on its side. Um, but then the, the and and the way it's filmed is you can't quite tell if the cat's meant to be moving very, very fast, so he like looks one way and the cat's there, mm. and then he looks the other way and the cat's there, or if there is more than one cat, or yeah. if it's teleporting around, which we do see it can do later in a different scene. Yeah, it's very um, it's it's shown in a very different way uh, later when it's when it's obvious it's some form yeah. of teleportation or or something. Um, yes, it's it's never it's never quite clear, but I think that's kind of in a way kind of good that it's not like the whole the ambiguousness the ambiguousness of it all is i i think kind of because because cats you know black cats are known you know for a long time as being very superstitious don't cross them they're bad luck mm. you know so it kind of i think it kind of adds to that 
takes that element but kind of expounds on it and grows it and goes, these cats are not just unlucky, they are just pure evil and can do whatever they like, whenever they like. So stay away. Right. Um, um, something else that's kind of ambiguous about it, it, it extends to the motivation of the cat, doesn't it? Because, you know, the, the, there are these murders going on and... Professor Miles is kind of brought in at one point as an aide to the detectives because he's able to use his psychic abilities to kind of find where the key is, for instance, for this dreadfully unlucky couple who've been locked in um, an airtight room by the cat and have suffocated yeah. while naked. Hmm. Um, and... Um, uh, you know, but then it, it kind of... the I, To be honest... I, I didn't quite follow the explanation that we got later on in the film, and, and you your explanation that you gave on your podcast was a bit clearer, so maybe I'll ask you to go for it again. But basically, sure. it seems like the cat started... Um, well, Miles was hypnotising the cat to kill people, but then the cat became uh, the dominant one, so we're getting him to kill people for it. But then he tries to kill it to stop it doing that. Hmm. But then it comes back from the dead. Yeah, and then at the yeah. end, I wasn't really sure if he was acting on his own volition or because of the cat. I guess it was because at the end he, he, he tries to kill Mimsy Farmer's character, hmm. doesn't he? He does, yeah. Um, I think, again, like you say, is fairly ambiguous. But what I kind of see it as initially he's trying to assert, like you said, assert his dominance over the cat and make and make it do what it wants. However, there's there's part of me that also thinks that he the the cat has just kind of turned up and and he's it the cat is feeding off his like negative emotions, like his right. you know, his subconscious desires to to kill, hurt, um, you know, embarrass, disparage, you know, just ruin these other people's lives that have caused him pain and issue. You know, he's he's previous girlfriend who kills his daughter kills her daughter kills her um you know all this other stuff so I, I kind of feel like it's almost they're almost kind of you know they're almost constantly battling for uh, you know supremacy okay. supremacy almost but i think i think after after he kills the cat which is a horrific scene which i doubt you'd ever see you know i don't okay. know if you'll see it in another film but um, I think after that, the cat's like, right, this, you know, all bets are off now. All my powers are uh, going to be used to to make you do what I want you to do. Because at the end, he seems to be quite surprised by the location of somebody he's tried to kill. For me, because he's okay. kind of he's kind of screaming like, oh, oh, oh no! It's almost like he didn't believe he did it, or he wasn't doing it, right? Or he okay. wasn't. He wasn't okay. conscious. I mean, you could you could honestly discuss this and the motivations, and is that character being hypnotized? Are they not being hypnotized? You know, who's dominant? And who, you could discuss this for weeks on end, no doubt. He does say at one point, "I have never wanted to kill," <laughs> doesn't he? Yeah, in the most um, disturbing way possible. Yes. <laughs> Um, it's fantastic. Uh, I just uh, I love the way he says everything. Um, I mean, we're in spoilers, so it's okay to say. So, which victim yeah. is that? Where he's surprised? 
So I think it's the final. It's um, it's uh, Mimsy's character. So he's 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 tried to get. I think she's alive in the end. I think. Yes. Yes. No, she is. She is. And and I'll give credit to this movie because as an adaptation, because even though I said that you can't really adapt that story and and you have to make up your own story, this movie does go to a lot of effort to at least kind of include a lot of elements that were present in the original story. So. The thing about him hanging a cat comes from the story. Yeah. The thing about the house burning down comes from the story. Um, and the thing about the, the kind of shadow of the cat on the noose being revealed mm. in chalk, mm. uh, that comes from the story as well. Um, and they've, they've kind of worked all these things in. And in fact, the bit at the end of the story where he, um, he bricks up his murdered wife and then, but he doesn't realise he's bricking up the cat, and the cat leads people to find the wife. Uh, is reprised here where he bricks up Mimsy Farmer, although he's not killed her, he's just knocked her out, mm. I think. Um, and then the cat's in the wall, and it uh, and it makes noises which leads the the police officers to find it. Mm. Um, uh, I, in a way, that that's better than the story because in in the story you're thinking, oh, so he he bricked up this cat without realizing that the cat was there and was still alive, whereas in this film we know that the cat can teleport, so he could have bricked her up and then the cat beams itself, Star Trek style, <laughs> into the wall so that it can lead people to her well i I was thinking Um, i was thinking that the cat wants to be bricked into the wall because the cat the cat knows the police are going to come and then when the cat when the police there the cat's going to make noise and then he goes haha i got you i got you professor miles for killing me now you're going to prison or you're going to be executed or what have you um that's that's how i see it but again it's it's up to interpretation yeah um and it is a great ending. I mean, we've skipped straight to the ending. We'll talk about some other bits from earlier in the film. But I love the moment, even though it kind of makes less sense that you would not kill someone but decide to brick them up. Why not make sure they're dead first? But he's mm. he's bricking her up in the wall and she's still alive. And there's a wonderful shot from inside the the. Uh, the kind of cove that cove is not the word. Um, what am I trying to say? Al- the alcove, alcove yeah. that she's in, um, where you, you see him brick up the wall, and then there are a few spots of light still coming through, and he blocks them one by one. So you see the light, the shafts of light vanish. So she becomes less and less visible, and the last one, the shaft of light is going directly to her eye. And then the, the, the hole is blocked up and her eye fades away. Mm. You know, stuff like that is just fantastic and takes such creativity mm. and such forward planning mm. to set up. You know, that's great visual direction going on there. And there's loads of moments like that kind of throughout the film. Yeah. Um, no, I, were I, you going to say something there? there I, I was, I was going to say that, like, you know, I, again, I think that might be the cat's mesmerism, that he's mesmerised Miles and that he's he's just doing it and just like he's not going to kill her because you know it's going to the cat doesn't want her deadness so yeah exactly he just wants to trap him mm. and get um, and get him arrested or you know killed or what have you whatever yeah. whatever the punishment was back then um, and while we're talking about the ending you know I do think it's just nice in this mm-hmm. kind of movie I wasn't expecting it that the hero and heroine live 
Yeah. You know, it seems very much like Inspector Garforth is killed when he's attacked by cats and then hypnotised to walk into a car um, earlier on. But then he just turns up at the end, he's kind of recovered. Um, And obviously, um, I keep wanting to call her Tisa Farrow. Tisa Farrow is the lead actress in Zombie Flesh Eaters, and she's Mia Farrow's sister. But obviously it's not her, it's Mimsy Farmer. Um, But they're very similar types. Um, again, maybe this says something about Lucia Fulci, but um, yeah, and Mimsy Farmer's not not dead. She's rescued at the end, um, and uh, yeah, so it, it does in a way that the 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 nice romantic music is justified at the end yeah. because the hero yeah. is alive, the heroine's alive, and the cat's alive, mm. um, and I suppose that the dark thing is whether you think. Professor Miles was really responsible for his own actions. Does he deserve the fate that the cat has engineered for him? Uh, because he's probably going to go to prison for life now, I imagine. I, I, I you wanted to um, you wanted to talk about the introduction to uh, to the uh, detective. Uh, I think. Uh, oh yes, yes. I think it's a genius bit of introduction. There. Um, <laughs> yes, go on, take it away, so I, Dan. I'll go take for it. it. Okay. So, um, so this is, obviously it's very these very kind of rural kind of English town and all of a sudden you hear mum, 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 and this is motorbike just going hell for leather down through this little village and uh, and all of a sudden it's like it's the policeman says stop and the local policeman says right I'm gonna have to write you a ticket you know all this sort of stuff and he goes well I was supposed to get here very quickly I am the inspector after all and he goes oh, <laughs> just, oh inspector we're expecting you um and uh, and he was like uh, he was like yeah you know I had to be here quickly but yeah tell me more about it well we got word from Scotland Yard and these murders and and uh, and he's and he's and he goes um and the police officer goes so where shall I where shall I address your ticket to and the and the inspector's like, "Are you really going to give me a ticket? <laughs> Are you genuinely going to give me a ticket?" Because he was like, "He's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm the I'm the policeman now. You won't give me a ticket." And he's like, "No, I'm still going to give you a ticket. It's my job." <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I just think that's a, such a fantastic introduction because it's so pointless. You know, they set up and basically an amazing action scene. You know, the camera work as the bike comes into the village, is so thrilling that the bike is moving at such speed. And then he suddenly stops and just takes his helmet off and like, and I'm the detective, hello. <laughs> you know, and introducing your, your leading character. Um, so I, d- I just thought, wow, that's all right. Um, welcome, David Warbuck. We welcome you to the film with a big action sequence. Yeah. Um, it, it definitely makes an impression. I'm I want to mention... Yeah, yeah, it's a hero's entrance. Yeah. And um, the sergeant who he he interacts with there, um, so for the first kind of half an hour of the film, that, that sergeant is the police presence before the detective arrives. And um, it says, it speaks to the fact that this film was written by Italians, that I think any movie made after the early 70s in which there is a character called Sergeant Wilson, was not written by British people, because I think in it, well, for me anyway, I just go straight to Dad's Army when I hear that name. Um, it's funny. There's a, in Colombo. We've talked about this with Howard. There's an episode where he's got a, a sidekick called Sergeant Wilson, and again, it's like, well, obviously they don't know, but. To us, it's just like comedy name. And ironically, Sergeant Wilson in The Black Cat 
is played by one of the um, the the, the only principal Italians in the cast. So it is Al Cliver he's, co- he's credited as, and he's also in Zombie Flesh Eaters. But his real name is Pierluigi Conti. Um, so I think he's probably not dubbed by himself because he's got this kind of West Country accent in the version of the film that I watched. Mm. Um, but he, you know, but he looks like a kind of typical British cop. Yeah, he does. Yeah, um, I, could, I could expect so. him. I could expect to see him in a, you know, like a rural local town, something like that. I could see that. Yeah, and you know, power to Al Cliver. I think he's an American cop in mm. Zombie Flesh Eaters. So he's pro- possibly one of the cops on the boat. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. In the in the New York sequence, so um, no, he, he's he's great as well. I just um, I suspect it's not his voice. Um, <laughs> Probably not. So let's kind of think about other remarkable bits of the movie that we'd like to just kind of mention from from earlier or or whenever. Yeah. Um, I think obviously the first the death of I think it's it's well we talked about the first death mm. which is the, the opening scene but then there's the death of the the, the couple who yes. are sealed into the boathouse which is like the most Italian horror bit of the the movie I think really isn't it um, so we have a, a couple who are making out uh, in a rowing boat in this nice picturesque location and they're basically the guy says whose name is Stan the character's name is Stan and he basically says in not so many words why don't we go somewhere private where we can have sex and uh, he leads her to this boathouse that he's a key holder for um, because he obviously does some work there and they they go into this kind of little cooling room where there is a bed Hmm. Um, it's for the um, the kind of harbour master to stay overnight when he needs to isn't it I think Um, so they go into this room and lock themselves in but do not realise that they are being observed by the black cat uh, uh, throughout this and and the black cat is able to kind of enter the room via the air duct Hmm. and then remove the key to the door from the inside so they can't get out. He, he takes the key out of the door, which I don't. I don't understand. I was like, "You've already locked it. Why don't you just leave it in there?" And then it's there. Oh yeah. I just, yeah, that's true. He like he removes it. It's not like the cat's removing it. Um, so I was just like, "Why?" And I'll be honest, that that room is definitely not airtight. There's there's no <laughs> way. It, there's no, it's not airtight. It's there's a massive vent. Just clearly a lot of light coming through it as well. I was like, well, that's true. I think they, they kind it. of try and imply that the air supply in the room is uh, automated and the cat breaks it. That's by right, yeah. Going through the air vent. but um, And then later on, it's kind of. They've taken their clothes off to make love and then discover that the room is. that they're locked in. They don't put their clothes back on. So later on, when they're found dead, they're both naked there and dead. So they obviously sat there with no clothes on for long enough to suffocate. Yeah, they're like, going. And you've got what's all the going on? Foaming at the mouth. And, yeah, uh, they both look like they've got rabies yeah. when they're found. Uh, is that a natural. Um, Side effects. I have no no idea. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't say. Um, but there's there's a the the detective work in that scene is not great because they're like they go, you know. Well, we don't think Miles, Professor Miles comes because so the mother um, is looking for the daughter who's gone missing. So missing yeah. for several days. 
she she was involved or in a relationship once with Miles or has some sort of prior kind of relationship with him. Uh, and she visits him and says, I need to find my daughter. You've got paranormal, paranormal powers. Can you help me? He has a vision. He sees the death. He sees where the key is. Um, because the cat's just dumped it on a boat for some reason after he's locked the door. Right. On a tarpaulin. <laughs> yeah, on the tarpaulin. Um, so that's the, what gives them the clue to go look. And then she remembers the keys on the boat and they lock the door. Uh, and then Professor Miles turns up and obviously they're like, well, you seem to know a lot about this murder scene that you know nobody else knows about. Um, but he says, well, do you, do you, is it me? Do you think it's me or not? Come on, tell me. And they're like, well, unless you're small enough to get through this opening... Um, we, we do not consider you a murderer. Well, it's suicide, surely. He's like, no, obviously. And then, and then they're like, we have no idea what's gotten through this this little opening. And then, and then Professor Miles looks and sees paw, cat paw prints um, within the dirt of the vent. And, oh, I, and I'm yeah. like, I'm like, you're a detective. You should notice that, surely. <laughs> That's the first thing you'd notice. But there you go, there you go. But um, yeah, very. I think you're right. It's, it is. There is something quite Italian about it. Um, this, yeah. This, just the whole setup for the scene, and and it's. I don't know if it's maybe they're trying to be very clever with it, or is you know try and make it make the mystery last longer throughout the film. But I mean, we all know. We all know who who's who's done it. What's done it. Um, but you know, I guess it's it's trying to prove that that to everybody else that the cat is the killer. And it's just piling the lasciviousness on it, isn't it? Which is kind of typical. Um, in this kind of movie at the time, and certainly in the Italian horror films, you know, you, you've got the, the sex death equation, the sex violence equation, nudity violence, it, it, you know, it frequently goes together. It's just in this kind of movie, which is, um, you know, it's got this kind of quaint village setting mm. and really, a, a, in a way, quite a low-key mystery mm. centred around this, uh, the Professor Miles character. Mm. Um, it's almost as if they've just kind of thought well where can we crowbar in the sex stuff because yeah. we need to to put that in there and i think that's underlined because that first sex scene with with stan and is she called maureen the girl maybe yeah more she is Maud? yeah no it's maureen oh. i know because uh, yeah i remember i i have a sister called maureen ah. and i just thought oh she's gonna love this <laughs> because the name maureen is just not generally used in in you know, positive contexts in media. <laughs> no. It's just not happened over the years. But, um, yeah, because before they die, we, we, we have the, the the scene where they start to make love and they take their clothes off and then get locked in. And it immediately cuts to a scene which introduces Maureen's mother. But the way they introduce Maureen's mother is that she's making love with someone. It's like sex scene on sex scene. Uh, you know, and and... The, the person she's making love with does not become, as far as I remember, a major character. So they could have, they didn't need to introduce the two characters like that. They could have introduced her in any way. Hmm. But they just go, you know, we're on a roll here. It might as well just carry on. And to be fair, it, it it's there's a certain logic in the transition hmm. um, and then but weirdly, you know, we then later on find out that she um she and Professor Miles had that relationship, mm. which I kind of felt was like dropped in dialogue a bit randomly. Mm. Maybe they could have found a smoother way to introduce that. But I, sp I think the character of Maureen's mother is the kind of weak bit of the film for me because, mm. um, you know, she she's put in this position of constant like despair. 
you don't really know anything about the character yeah. other than that she's she's got a daughter who she's very worried about. And then she has the grief bit yeah. where they find the daughter dead, and then she's horribly killed <laughs> by being burned to death. I, 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 found, I found yeah, it, it, it is spectacular that death, and I found it quite quite funny as well because um, the shots of this mannequin with these kind of flappy arms. They're just kind of right, yeah, and yeah. the flapping arms are just going, and it's just like ah! You just see these yeah, arms going true. up and down. Um, but it reminded me of Orca because we were talking about when we talked about Orca on on uh, Spider Man: The Secret Boards. We talked about that the the killer whale has a knowledge of of combustion. Um, oh yeah, and I felt like this is very much the same. Like the cat knows how to start a fire. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's true, actually. Um, well, no, that that's an Italian horror genre convention. Killer animal movies. There. <laughs> yeah, and but no, that that whole sequence it is spectacular, and it's yeah the um the effect the burning effect is a bit shonky, yeah. but visually, but at the same time, the way that they dub her screams onto it is you know kind of hair raising. Mm, there is yeah. a, a sadism to the scene. Absolutely. Which kind of runs through all the, the kind of deaths and um, kind of maulings but, that happen throughout the film. They're all nasty. There's no getting away from that. No. That's kind of part of I, the, I, the I, genre. I know. As well. I know. As a kind of a horror fan, like I, I find like a lot. Some some of the stuff that I find really, really good or really entertaining or like um, really effective is stuff that I also laugh at because I, I, I enjoy it because I get an enjoyment factor out of like ridiculous gore and, and ridiculous, you know, effects and monsters and stuff and uh, things like that. And I, and I feel like that's one of those scenes that's kind of like, I love it, but it's stupid, but that's kind of why I love it as well. Um, but yeah, I, th I think the, the only really, really bad shot in the film for me, like really awful is the bit where uh, Mimsy, uh, is it Mimsy? Mimsy? Yes. Yeah. Is being attacked by the bats. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's quite um, and there's quite a lot of. Like, is that that when she goes into the crypt near the start? She, uh, no, it's actually towards the end when she's in oh, right. Miles' oh, yeah, house. Yeah. There's a there's a long sequence of her uh, being attacked by bats. Now, this film, like uh, apart from apart from that moment, this film has been really good at cutting around um, the cat, for example. Like, it could look very bad and very obvious and very crap. Um, no, the the way that they get a great performance out of that cat, mm. or, or however many cats it was, and the way they shoot it, you know, it, it looks very purposeful, the way it walks and everything like that. I think they, they actually did a really good job there. It's not yeah. just an, a, a docile animal that they're struggling to oh, make absolutely. look malevolent. Yeah, it, it looks there's always there's always a presence and a character to the cat, um, mm. but but specifically the attacks are really well done because again it's not it's not like just long shots of a cat on someone's face and them going ah it's on my face you know they're yeah. they're constantly really sharp cutting you know edit, editing almost like every swipe of the cat is another is another cut shoom, another cut shoom, another cut. Uh, and it works so well because there's a lot of these yeah. killer animal movies that look stupid or a bit, you know, the way they're shot. Like Jaws, for example, you know, the shark didn't work. They shot around Jaws to make it effective. And I think they yeah. do a very good job of the same with the cat here. But with the bats, 
they they just kind of seem to just hold on the bats too far too long, uh, slightly too long, and at you least, yeah. and and you can see the string as well, and it's it's right. on, it's on every single bat you can see the string. You're like, I was like, just cut. Second, you see that string. Second before that that string comes, you know, the light hits that string. I would just cut, 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 cut. Mm. But again, that's I'm not the filmmaker, so I I can't make that decision. But that that's well, the, what that's I the would only say bit. is. I'll defend them on the grounds that it still looks a lot better than the, the, the killer bats that are in many of the Hammer Dracula films. I mean, I know <laughs> that was about 10 years earlier, but they always linger too long. Yeah. Um, and and they never look anything other than fake. Um, so th- th- this is much better than that. Okay. Um, but... Um, yeah, I mean, visually, I think it's a really strong film, and um, I mean, we've only got a few minutes left, okay. so um, I want, you know we'll have to wrap up soon. But I do want to mention that I think you know it's kind of positioned in its time by the the really good use of Steadicam. I mean, we discussed this on the Halloween podcast um, because that film introduced the use of Panaglide to, to to give the killer's point of view, um, and then in the you know that had developed over the three years since that point so in the shining we had the steadicam operated by its inventor garrett brown kind of prowling low down around the overlook hotel to kind of simulate danny's point of view on the trike and that became i think someone realized well we can do this and it will be an animal's point of view and then in 1981 we get the animal point of view horror movie so we get wolfen which again is Garrett Brown, and you get the the wolf's point of view kind of prowling around, and then at the same time there is this, which we've got the cat's point of view, and I think you get a lot of kind of super low angles using a wide angle lens, um, really fluid kind of motion, um, that really good use of that, which again kind of aids the visual storytelling that, that I was talking about before, um, and just kind of fits into that moment. Um, you know, because we uh, of the kind of emergence. I think all these things, kind of prosthetics and um, um, and the use of Steadicam and things like that, and the practical effects which were coming in at that time, all combined to make us go, uh, "Oh, we can do monster movies better now." So you know, like American Wolf in London, which is, again is 1981, has the kind of low angle prowling Steadicam for the werewolf when it's going around the London underground. And is another example of a movie where non-British producers were able to make horror film in, in England uh, when, when British producers couldn't. Um, so, yeah, I think that stuff is, is really well done. And also because we've not really mentioned her much, apart from that I said she, she gives a great performance, which she does. I actually think Mimsy Farmer's character is a really good kind of heroine in the sense that She's very independent. I mean, she literally, she's a traveller. She's American. She doesn't live in this town. She doesn't know anybody in this town. She's a photographer, um, kind of going about her own project. But she gets involved with this mystery, and she she goes where she will to find out what's going on. She puts herself in danger many times, and mainly gets out of it herself um, until the end, when she's obviously bricked up in the wall and needs to be rescued. But it's kind of refreshing that she's not really rescued by the men. She's rescued by the cat. Yeah. It, it's all part of the cat's machinations to trap 
uh, Robert Miles. Um, so I, I think she was great. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, is there anything else, Dan, that you'd like to talk about in um, terms of the film that we've not mentioned? I think I think we kind of I feel like we've kind of covered covered everything. Um, I think again I think it is a really good film. I do feel like this is like Lucio Fulci a little bit out of his comfort zone, but yes. I think I think he he kind of almost tones down his extreme violence to fit the more gothic mood of the Edgar Allan Poe story uh, and the mm. influences. Like you said, all the different elements he's managed to pepper through while still having a fairly original killer cat movie. Like you said, like the killer cat element is not in that original story. That's just, no. it's just an appearance by a cat. Um, and and I, I feel like he manages to marry all those kind of elements together. I think I would have preferred if it was in kind of more of a, a, a gothic town, you know, like a maybe Victorian mm. era London or something like that. That might be yeah, it looks a bit twee, doesn't it? It's kind of set in a sort of Cornish fishing village kind mm. of. Well, but, it's not that, but it's no. going for that kind of vibe. But again, but then that also makes it like a very interesting location for a horror yeah. film. And again, a lot of the a lot of the the shots, a lot of the you know, the, a lot of the film is in daylight as well, which is quite rare in these kind of yeah, that's horror true. Movies and as actually. Well. Um, you know, I've kind of banged on about how beautiful the photography is, and I think it's down to two elements that we've mentioned there. One is the heavy use of daylight, and the other is the um, the fact that in in the few nighttime scenes, you know, you have such use of um, visual visual creation of atmosphere with the, the the dry ice, the smoky graveyards, and things like that. And those scenes are just kind of fantastic. Mm. Um, and then you kind of move from uh, that to the kind of plot, the character-based stuff, um, Patrick McGee and his spooky speeches. I think the thing which kind of makes it a bit weird to me is that, and maybe this is a function of being uh, like a Western viewer, I mean Western, uh, obviously Italy is, is West, but, um, you know, because with the things we're used to, I think to me a lot of the Italian horror films that I've seen kind of seem a bit disjointed. They've got loads of great elements, but they don't. those elements don't necessarily gel together hmm. as smoothly as maybe we would like, but they are still there. Hmm. Um, and, and I think that's, that's not necessarily a problem. Um, it sounds like I'm knocking it for that. But I, I think that there is a kind of, Big budget kind of studio cookie cutter Hollywood product has led us to kind of value slickness. Mm, yeah. And I don't think slickness is necessarily that valuable. It's only good if you if you have to have loads underneath the slickness. And and a lot of films kind of are all surface mm. and nothing underneath it. I, I this feel, has all the stuff. I feel I feel it. a lot of films as well, like we have to have everything explained to us all of the time. Like everything has yeah. to have a reason for being there or what's it doing. You know, we don't. I feel like that we don't always have to explain every little detail, um, in every single film. Like, there's a nice. It's nice to have a bit of ambiguity now and again, or to, or to have you know a potential for like you know an extended universe type thing. Like, tell that story in another medium. Um, if there is a plot hole, like you said with the novels from Alien, um, you know, yeah. I, I like I like that element. But, but yeah, I I agree. I agree. I think I think. You know, most of my favorite films are cult films. They've got a lot of holes in them. You know, there's a lot of issues with them, but I love them for what they are, and I and I love this film for what it is. 
Yeah, that's great, and uh, I I respect that, and I agree with you. About and for the listeners, that mention of the the plot holes from Alien was something we were talking about before we started recording. Oh, sorry. Which is the option of um, you know, a, a novelizer. Obviously, many movies are turned into novels, and sometimes the novelizer has the the time to to kind of fix the bits of the script that maybe don't quite work, which yeah. the filmmakers, especially in the low-budget realm, haven't had the chance to do. They just haven't had that moment to stop and think, wait a minute, we could very simply fix this problem. Yeah. There was, uh, I'll tell you what, there was a really good version of this. Um, do you know in um, The Force Awakens, I think it's The Force Awakens, where yeah. uh, C-3PO turns up with a red arm? Oh, yes, which is never explained. Never explained. I remember. However, there was a comic book annual that kind of explained the, the backstory to the Red Arm. And it, right. t- it turns out that another robot had sacrificed himself, a Imperial droid had sacrificed himself to save C-3PO. And, and the, the Red Arm was due to him going out into some acid rain. Um, and, oh, okay. and because of the sacrifice, C-3PO said, I'm going to wear your arm as a badge of honour. Right. Okay. It was great. So I loved it. They got a whole backstory about. Yeah. That sounds like a pretty good story for another movie. Definitely. I, I mean, I think it does hint at something. I think is becoming a prevalent, um, detrimentally is that you know. Sometimes writers don't seem to bother that that much with little details these days because they know that somebody will write a book or a comic or something that will fix it. And um, that does lead to some kind of lazy storytelling. True. Um, but but at the same time, you know, it, it, making movies is difficult enough. You can't always get everything right. No. And the point is made that, you know, the, sometimes the ancillary media, the people who, who write it and create it have more time to, to think and apply creative solutions to these kind of problems. Um, but, sir, I think we've covered the black cat. I, I think, think so. Um, I think uh, I hope that this has been an entertaining listener listen, and mm. I hope that uh, people have who've not seen the film have been moved to to go seek it out, and maybe um, if you have seen the film, I hope you feel like we've we've done it justice. Um, so, Dan, at the end of every episode mm. of the show, we like to recommend something that's available to listeners to to seek out in the horror realm. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe you've got something for us this week. I do. So um, just uploaded to the the Netflix streaming giant um, is one of my favourite films. I'm a big superhero fan, but I'm also a big horror fan. So I'm going to go with Sam Raimi's Dark Man. Oh, wow. Okay, great. Um, yeah. it's, it's kind of... it was uh, Sam Raimi wanted to do a superhero movie. He wanted to do Shadow. Couldn't get the rights to the Shadow, so he created an original character, which is kind of kind of a modern Phantom of the Opera meets the Shadow. Um, Liam Neeson is is the lead guy. He plays... Uh, uh, I think it's... Oh, it's Westlake something. Penton Westlake? Dr. Pe- Dr. Peyton Westlake. Peyton Westlake. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Francis McDormand is in it as well. Um, a, a Larry Drake. Um, it's a wonderful kind of not throwback to those old '90s kind of pulpy superhero movies that were being produced. And well, it was made in it. 1990, wasn't it? Yes. And um, so it, it is part of that movement, and it has music by Danny Elfman as well, coming straight off Batman. Mm-hmm. So it's got the kind of gothic superhero approach down pat. And, really. and if you like seeing Liam Neeson kill and be angry. And have some great one-liners. This is the movie for you. 
great. I mean, Liam Neeson does that a lot more now, but at the time it was quite a, a departure for him. It was, yeah. And also Frances McDormand, you know, she's not in that many kind of comic book or blockbuster-type movies. Um, certainly not then. Um, so it, it and it's, it's a really fun film. And I even enjoyed the sequels. I've seen both sequels. It's, uh, is, um, it, is it um, Voslu? Is it, uh, Anton- Arnold Voslu Arnold takes Vosloo. over the lead role in, in the two sequels, which were made for TV, yeah. Um, but I find them oddly charming. But certainly, in terms of filmmaking, um, you know, Darkman has got the Sam Raimi stamp on it. It's great. It has... Um, it has uh, it crosses the horror and comic book kind of genres very well. Uh, it's got the the Sam Raimi things that you'd expect, an appearance by Bruce Campbell. It also has a cameo appearance from Jenny Agatha as a nurse, which I like to think. Uh, I think she's a nurse. Maybe she's a doctor, but if she's a nurse, um, I like to think she's the same character that Jenny Agatha played in American Wolf in London. Ah. Just many years later, and she's moved continents for some reason. <laughs> could happen, um, could happen. Yeah, well, you know, her boyfriend turned into a werewolf and then got shot dead, so, you know, maybe she wanted to start a new life somewhere else. Um, okay, so that's great. Thank you, Dan. Um, that's that's a good film I'd love to, to go back and revisit, actually. Um so my recommendation for this week is something that's on Amazon Prime, and I thought it was appropriate given the content of this week's episode. It's a movie from 1980 called The Monster Club. It's an anthology horror movie. It's the one of the last through through the 70s and 60s. There were, you know, the, um, there's a series of anthology horrors made by Amicus Productions. Uh, Howard and I have talked about some of those on earlier episodes, and. Towards the end of the 70s, the company Amicus fell apart, but its main producer, Milton Subotsky, a Canadian, I think Canadian producer, um, uh, no, sorry, he's American. Um, we always get confused about that. He, he, he kind of continued making horror anthologies off his own back, but, and one of them was The Monster Club, which has Patrick McGee in it. It's, ah. um, so it's made quite close to this, and it has a cast of horror legends like many of these anthologies do so vincent price and john carradine are the leads we all know vincent price carradine was one of the universal draculas who took over from bella lugosi um in the cast we've also got people like donald pleasance and brit eckland um and it's like really silly and it's really cheap um, but it does have one or two really good stories in it, but also stories that are kind of silly in a very charming way. You know, it actually there's a vampire story in it which actually contains the line, "Good thing I was wearing this steak-proof vest." <laughs> so uh, you know, um, it, it certainly has a, a novelty charm to it. Um, and it, and it has some nice music in it as well. And, and also uh, a ghoul played by Leslie Dunlop, who later was the, a sitcom and soap opera star in Britain. But in this film, she's very young and she plays a ghoul in a village of ghouls. And in fact, Patrick McGee appears in that bit as a ghoul innkeeper. So, uh, You know um, what? I think, I, I think I'm going to watch that tonight. I, mean, I think I'm going to watch that tonight. <laughs> I'd recommend it very much. It's, I mean, yeah, it, it's got na- very enough stuff in it. It's very, very cheap. Apparently, uh, 
again, because of the low budget and the, the quick schedule, um, they didn't know where they were going to get the monster masks from because it is, it's called the Monster Club and the crux of it is it's about a nightclub frequented by monsters, werewolves and vampires and so on. But they didn't really have... Uh, well, for some reason, they sought the makeup uh, effects for the other monsters. It, quite unconventionally, the producer just went to his next-door neighbour, who... Uh, this is what I've heard. This is alleged. I don't know if this is actually true. But he just went to his next-door neighbour who wasn't in the business of monster makeup and just said, can you make some monster masks for us so that we have this really random connection of monsters in the Monster Club. And also, they ha in the Monster Club, they have live music. So there's a lot of musical numbers in the film. It's really bizarre. And it's kind of the fag end of the British horror tradition in a lot of ways. So... Um, but Vincent Price is really charming in it, and there's some good stuff. As there, always, so. as always, as always. Yeah, it's it's one of his last kind of bright moments, I think. And pre, I, love, I love a good, I love a good horror anthology because end of the day, you know, not all the stories you're gonna like, but there's gonna be there's definitely gonna be one in there that's your favourite. Yeah, yeah. If you watch it, you'll definitely find something to love. Um, I can guarantee you that. Okay, folks, so that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Um, I'd just like to thank you, Spider Dan, for coming back on the show. It's, I mean, the, the listeners have heard you recently on our show, but it's good to have you here live in these strange times and to be able to shoot the breeze with you about Fulci's weird masterpiece, <laughs> The Black Cat. Thank you so much for introducing me to that. And My thank pleasure. you for your passion for that. And folks, listeners, we'll be back next week. Spider Dan sadly won't be with us, but Stella will be returning to us, and she and I will talk about all the movies we saw at Fright Fest this weekend. So that should be some fun listening as well, and, and you should get some recommendations out of there for films to look out for as they become available from the cutting edge of horror. But for this week, um, I have been T.D. Velasquez, who you can call Dan, uh, I, and my my co-host has been the wonderful Spider Dan and the Secret Balls. <laughs> and uh, yes, hopefully we've just hit just the right note of being secretly boring for our <laughs> listeners, as always, for this week. <laughs> so, thank you very much for listening, folks. We'll be back. Take good care of yourselves. Bye bye. Bye. You have been listening to, and now the podcast starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by T.D. Velasquez with special guest, Spider Dan. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com, for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages, at AndNowPod or at LeeCushingPod. Follow us on Twitter, at AndNowPodcast or at LeeCushingPodcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash and now podcast and now the podcast stops <laughs>